Okay, so all my coughing and stuff, it's asthma, it's not COVID, so don't worry about that. I guess I'm already on, huh? All right. Uh, all right, so Brian asked for me to fill in for him tonight as he's taking some well-deserved time off, and I was, I'm always happy to do so. I like Sunday nights. So, um, I guess without further ado, get right into my lesson and then uh, hand out the prayer pieces. Hopefully there's enough to go around. Oh, I, I know. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. <laughs> no, you called her sassy. I don't know if, I, I don't know if I'm sassy. Okay, all right. In my uh, in my personal, uh, you know, study, just for my own uh, personal devotion and stuff, I've been studying the looking through the book of Colossians, and of course, that's what I'm going to share with you tonight. And as I've been uh, rereading and reading and rereading Colossians and seeing things that are going on there with that church, um. Well, let's go ahead and read uh, verse 23, and that way uh, you can kind of understand where I'm coming from. In uh, verse 23 of Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes to these, to these dear believers, he says, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature, which was made which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now, uh, that's kind of the verse that I'm going to key off of. And as I was, as I had been looking through Colossians, I, asked, I was ask, asking my, the, this question came to my mind. And the question was, what is at risk here, here in the Colossian church? What is, what is really at risk here with this church so long ago? Well, what was going on was that uh, false teachers had infiltrated the church. And what they were doing was, is they were presenting a form of heresy uh, that later evolved in what we know of as Gnosticism. And the Gnosticism, what it is, is a kind of a strange mixture or conglomeration of Jewish legalism and Greek philosophy and Far Eastern and Persian mysticism. And what this did was create a bizarre system of angelology. So it was a very strange combination of things. And what this particular brand of teaching was threatening, as far as this church was concerned, was uh, two things. And that was the headship of Christ over the church, and that Jesus Christ wasn't sufficient for the believer. That believer needed something other than Jesus Christ. He wasn't sufficient enough for the believer. And so Paul's concern was that uh, these beguiling false teachers, and he uses that word a couple of times in this epistle, the word beguiling, 
uh, would influence this church and move them away from the teachings of the gospel that a man by the name of Epaphras had brought to them because Epaphras sat under Paul's teaching while Paul was there in Ephesus in the school of Tyrannus, I believe, and there in Acts 19, and he had heard the gospel. He had sat right under the apostle Paul and had heard the truth, and he took this truth back with him to Colossae, and that's where he evangelized that church, and that's where that church came from. And so that's kind of the shorthand version of the background of this epistle. But it's interesting to me because, uh, well, there's really nothing new under the sun, is there? Because what was threatening the church in Colossae in, in Paul's day is, well, it's happening today, right under our own noses, it's happening today. I believe it was uh, Henry Ironside that uh, said that God in his wisdom in those early days of the church permitted all the possible error that the, the devil could throw at the church so that men like the Apostle Paul could deal with those errors so that when we come to our time, there's nothing new. It's already been dealt with. Paul's already given the answer for the, the errors that the devil had thrown at that, that early church. And so the very same things that threatened the church in Paul's day uh, is threatening the church today. It's just under a different name. It's just packaged a little differently. So there's really no new tricks in Satan's bag. He keeps pulling out the same old tricks. Uh, what is the only thing that remains the same? God's word, God's truth. That's the only thing that, that really is consistent that remains the same. So I believe that the Colossian epistle addresses many things that are at risk even for the church today and even individual members today. And um, one of those things is that the church today uh, does not hold Jesus Christ as preeminent, as the head of the church. And I'll go on to explain that in just a minute. And something else that affects more the individual believer in Christ is that, uh, the, that Jesus Christ isn't all that you need. That Jesus Christ isn't all that you need in, in this life and the life to come. So what are some of the things that might be at risk? Well, real quickly, one of those things that could be at risk or is at risk is one's liberty in Jesus Christ. One's liberty in Jesus Christ. That's at risk. If you don't hold Christ as the head of the church, uh, then the believer is taught that uh, something else is the head. Right? Something else is the head. And if the believer isn't taught that they are complete in Christ, then they're taught that they need this other thing to be complete. And if you notice with a lot of the cults and the false teachers, what do they do? They present to that weak believer another authority, such as the Book of Mormon or some other writing. And they have a set of teachings that says, if you follow these teachings, then you will be complete. You, you've got everything that you will, that you will need. Colossians 2.16, Paul says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day, 
or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. See, the Gnostic teaching said that the body was evil and that the body needs to be deprived of all earthly pleasures. It needs to be severely restricted by various disciplines and diets and so forth. And so what we have here is a form of legalism that has been brought in and this legalism was meant to suppress the flesh. Now, does that work? No, it doesn't work. Of course it doesn't work. When one moves away from Christ being the head and being the sufficiency of the believer to live a victorious life, what happens is that the church, and I've seen this happen, that the church or the individual believer, they have a tendency to gravitate toward a legalistic system. And so they become enslaved to rules And honestly, under a legalistic system, the only thing that's glorified is themselves. Themselves. Their prideful flesh. They become all puffed up in their prideful legalistic flesh because they keep all these rules. And so the only thing that really legalism does, legalism, it just leads to fleshly glory. That's if you don't teach that Christ is the head of the church and that your sufficiency is in him. So that's just one example. But the main thing that I want to talk about tonight, which I think the church is at grave risk right now, is the church is is, is, is losing its identity in Christ. Church is losing its identity in Christ. And when I speak of the church, of course, I'm speaking of what we know of as out there churchianity, okay? That's what I'm talking about, the church out there. Again, Colossians 1.27, Paul says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We already read in verse 23, where Paul says, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So who is the hope of the gospel? Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ is the hope of the gospel. He is the hope of glory. And this is what's going on in the churches today. The churches are losing their identity in Christ. We live in an age of identity crisis. We live in an age of identity crisis. There is the risk of identity theft. You've seen the commercials on television, right? There's the risk of identity theft. We live in an age when people are being labeled by others to be this or that, whether they're this or that or not. Uh, We live in an age when people are languishing in confusion about their identity, even what gender they choose to identify with. There's that much confusion today. If you choose not to identify with a particular political movement or a populist pressure group, then you become identified with something that is contrary to their agenda. So we're living in an age of identity crisis. And the church is no different. Most Christians today, I believe, have an an identity crisis and they're not even aware of it. They're not even aware of it. Uh, Those who um, refer to themselves as Christians uh, tend to have 
tend to identify more with the uh, dominant culture they live in uh, rather than they do with Christ as the head of the church. I mean, as an example, we've got political Christians, right? Republican Christians or Democrat Christians or independent Christians, and now we've got Marxist Christians. I remember a time that uh, someone once said that if you aren't a Republican, you can't be a Christian. But that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. We have materialistic Christians promoted by the wealth and health movement. And this is one I, I think is the most dangerous. We have moralist Christians. Moralist Christians. Uh, moralist Christians that they, that they practice not so much what the Bible teaches, but what has been termed as a moralistic, therapeutic Christianity. The five core beliefs of this kind of Christian is uh, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. And they prefer the God of the New Testament over the God of the Old Testament. There are Christians out there who actually believe that they are two different gods. And they prefer the God of the New Testament because he's more loving and more compassionate. Whereas the God of the Old Testament is just a big old meanie. So they have this dualistic idea. They also have this teaching that God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. Well, that's taught in other religions too. That's taught in other religions too. So it's kind of a type of commonality of what's good about most religions. That's what they've adopted. But yet they still call themselves Christians. With this thinking, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. That's part of the moralistic Christianity. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, these folks are all about the eating and the drinking. It's the glory to God thing that they stumble over. That's the thing that they have a problem with because uh, it kind of cramps their style. This is an interesting one. They say that God does not need to be particularly involved in my life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. That's kind of convenient, isn't it? <laughs> yes, there is. That's kind of a hands-off-my-life, life, God, until I, until I need you. Yeah, but that's their, that's their belief. They also, of course, believe good people go to heaven when they die. But when you have such an open-ended definition about goodness, this is really the logical conclusion. It's not the correct conclusion, but it's the logical one. So we have a moralistic Christianity out there that has placed a high value on being good. Yeah, that sounds okay. We all want to be good. But good in, in, in this Christianity is defined by popular culture, not by the word of God. 
They define their good by what is popular in culture and not what the Word of God says. So what we have and what we're seeing is more and more of this in Christianity where the attitude of tolerating behaviors the Bible calls sin might be seen as good while calling those very same things sin might be seen as intolerant and therefore bad. We kind of see that in, um, in a lot of folks' approach to homosexuality. More and more we're seeing Christian denominations that are ordaining homosexuals as pastors. More and more we're seeing, especially among many young people, young people-oriented churches, they're viewing homosexuality not so much as a sin condemned in the Bible, but something to be accepted something to be embraced. In fact, we had friends, I used the word had, we had friends that took great exception to um, that very issue. They felt as though that they should be embraced and welcomed, and, and I, I, I totally get that. But not if they're unrepentant in regards to their sin. Not if they're, and of course, that's not popular, is it? Not being very popular right now. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's according to popular culture. That's where they get their morality from. But if you pay attention to what's going on in Christianity, that's exactly what we're seeing more and more of. More and more of. The primary value of the moralistic Christians is to feel good about yourself. And God's primary job is to take care of us so that we can continue feeling good about ourselves and be happy. And that's what we see more and more of. If you listen, okay, here's a soapbox. If you listen to a lot of Contemporary Christian music today. That's pretty much the theme that you hear. The theme of, I want to be happy, and God exists so that I can be happy. That's pretty much what you hear on a lot of contemporary Christian music. The problem is that this moralistic Christianity is not biblical Christianity. And yet most people who hold to these beliefs identify themselves to being Christians when in fact they are not really biblically Christian because they're living to please themselves and glorify themselves and they have a wrong viewpoint of God. They don't have a biblical viewpoint of God. Many today have identified with a brand of Christianity that is really anti-Christian. And if you really push them, they are intolerant of the Christian faith and the word of God. If you really push them in a corner, they are intolerant of biblical Christianity and the word of God. And this is what's, t- this is what's taken over many, many churches, especially churches with young people. Now, I mentioned contemporary music. 
And yes, I'm still on that soapbox. But uh, contemporary Christian music, you can't talk about contemporary Christian music without mentioning Bethel Church. Bethel Church is a big, it's located in Redding, California, and it's a big, it's a big machine. It's a big music-making machine. It's pastored by husband and wife team, Bill and Benny Johnson. Uh, Bethel Music is, is very popular among many, many churches, many, many people who identify with the Christian faith. Their, church, their, their music is often used in good churches for their worship service. And it also receives a lot of airtime on, on Christian music stations. But the thing is, is a lot of people don't really understand what Bethel is all about. And they are pushing their message through their music. If you want to find a modern day correlation between the Gnosticism of Paul's day and our day, don't look any further than Bethel Church, because that's what you have. That's exactly what you have. Bethel Church has their own strange brand of angelology as well. Uh, Benny Johnson, who is Bill Johnson's wife and partner in pastoring, uh, this is uh, what she teaches about angels. She says there are different kinds of angels. There's messenger angels, healing angels, fiery angels who have simply fallen asleep. She says, I think that they have been bored for so long that they've fallen asleep, and it's time now to put them to work. <laughs> well, who's the authority here, Ron, right? Yeah, with that kind of teaching, who's the real authority? Jesus Christ is not the head of the church. She then uh, tells this story about one of her students at the uh, Bethel Supernatural School of Ministry. That's quite a title who claims that she went to the chapel and yelled real loud, wakey, wakey, because she wanted to wake up one of these angels. And uh, the story goes that nothing happened for about five minutes, so the, so the student turned around to, to go back across the road to a shop, and as she turned around, she felt the ground begin to shake, heard this huge yawn, she looked back at the chapel and a huge angel stepped out and all she could see was his feet because he was that big. And so she asked him who he was and he turned to her and said, I am the angel from the 1904 revival. That's that great Welsh revival that happened long ago. And you just woke me up. And then she asked him, why have you been asleep? And he says, because no one has been calling out for revival anymore. So now that this angel is awake, according to Bethel teaching, we ought to be seeing a great revival sweep the land. Now, where does Benny Johnson get this stuff? It's not from the Bible. Just like the Gnostics in Paul's day, she makes it up. And since Jesus Christ is no longer head of the church then her truth is as good as his truth. I mean, after all, when you don't believe the Bible is God's authority on such matters, then your made-up truth is just as good as God's word. 
That is the mentality that's out there. Christ is no longer the head of the church. And speaking of authority, one more thing about this very influential church is the authority they do choose to preach from. They promote a Bible called Passion Translation. And uh, the pastor, this uh, Bill Johnson, he says, it's one of the greatest things to happen with Bible translation in my lifetime. And there's one guy who made the translation, and he says that uh, his name is Brian Simmons, and he claims that this Passion Translation is distinct from other modern English Bible versions in that it is an essential equivalence translation. An essential equivalence translation. And he said that much of the passion has gone out of worship. That's why God moved him to do this translation. Because his desire is to put passion back into worship in the churches. Um, huh. What did Jesus say about those who worship God? They must worship him in what? Spirit and truth, not passion. Spirit and truth. The essential equivalence translation is uh, translating the text with words that are similar or express the sense of the passage. And it's not a word-for-word translation for which our King James Version is. And what the essential equivalence translation does, it leaves the translation open to overlapping ranges of reference and meaning and frees the translator to make certain allowances to free up the language of the text. He's freeing up the language of the text. Yes, sir, he is. Yeah, yeah. Well, one guy reviewed this text, and he wasn't very kind. He said the man is playing fast and loose with the original languages and inserting so much new material into the text that it is 50% longer than the original. So he's definitely adding to the word of God. He says the result is a strongly sectarian translation that no longer counts as scripture. By masquerading as a Bible, it threatens to bind entire churches in thrall to a false God. So I wonder who's behind this translation. You see, I bring all this up to simply say what Paul had said so long ago and warned about. Perilous times are coming. They shall come. And they're right with us right now. And where the popular church will deny Christ as its head and the members of this these churches, they'll no longer look to Christ as the head of the church. Nor will they look to Christ as being their sufficiency in this life. They'll seek other means to be complete. They'll look to other authorities. And definitely, these are the days of Laodicea and Colossae. Paul wrote in Colossians 4.16, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. 
If I know anything about the Laodicean church, what does the word Laodicea mean? The rights of the people, right? Isn't that what Brian teaches us? And that's exactly what we have in many of the churches today. So if you don't think that Gnosticism is not a problem today, uh, think again. It's there. It's just packaged differently. It's just packaged differently. And what a clever way to introduce it than through music. Because I guarantee you, many, many people don't pay attention to what is being sang. Is that the right word? (laughs) Or sung? As long as it's got a catchy beat or a beat that moves them emotionally. So what can we as a church, as individual Bible believers do? Well, first and foremost, know what the Bible teaches. Right? The only way you're going to tell counterfeit from from uh, counterfeit from the true is you got to know what's true. The popular church has lost its identity because it no longer knows what it believes. Like the Colossian believers, false teachers and their teaching, a large majority of modern Christians have been beguiled away from what the Bible teaches. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2.8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And that's exactly what we see going on in the church today. They are following after the traditions of men. They're following after the rudiments of the world. They're not holding fast to the word of God. They're not holding fast to Christ as the head. And that's what Paul tells us in Hebrews 10.23. He says, hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. We have a lot of folks out there wavering. Because they don't have a solid foundation. They don't know what the Bible teaches. I mean... um, JB at the men's at the men's breakfast. He he gave testimony about this church, didn't he, Ron? About this church and how it act, how it preaches and teaches the the word of God. And he says he he said I don't know if I'm quoting him correctly, but he said it's not out there. It's not out there. It is out there. There are some churches that are out there, but for the majority of the churches. Paul exhorted Timothy to hold fast the form of sound words and not essential equivalence translations. Now, that's my bit. I added that in there. But he said, hold fast to the form of sound words. The word form is also translated as as pattern. And what that reminded me of is when in Exodus, God warned Moses that when he put that tabernacle together, he said, boy, you better be careful that you do so according to the pattern that I showed you. Do not deviate from the pattern. And unfortunately, that's what's going on today. We've got so many churches and so many believers out there deviating from the pattern that God has already established for us. Moses was not given artistic license add to or take away what God had shown him. There was no room for essential equivalence translation for Moses. God clearly told him, don't deviate from the pattern. So we are to hold to the sound words 
of the KJV, and I'm not ashamed to admit that. I'm not ashamed to admit that. I hold to the KJV because it does uphold Jesus Christ as the head of the church, and it does teach me that Jesus Christ is my sufficiency for all things, and that in him I am complete. It does teach me that. It teaches me that. Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And I believe that's exactly what this church does. Now the day this church stops doing that, yep, I'll be following Sharon out the door. And then that brings me to the second point. Stay put in a Bible-believing church. Colossians 1.1, Paul says, An apostle of Jesus Christ with the will of God and Timotheus our brother to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. You stay put in a Bible-believing church. You know, we live in a culture of nomadic Christian or nomadic church attendance. If you don't like what's being said or, or this or that, then you've got the option to go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. You've got radio, you've got YouTube, television, popular books. There's so many superficial substitutions for the real thing. And that's the very thing that the devil is so good about, is offering superficial substitution for the real thing. We need to be a member in a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, mission-minded church. And I believe that's what we have here. It's essential for our protection. It's essential for our growth that we be members of a like-minded church that holds true to to the word of God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You know, by the virtue of Christ being the head of the church, and we belonging to him as the body of Christ, we simply cannot be in a real practical sense part of the head if we're not part of his body in a local church. Does that not make sense? The Gnosticism of today is for loose associations with all things Christian. It's all about maintaining our individuality and and safeguarding our individual rights to believe and worship as we choose and how we feel. This is why Paul said in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, one of the signs of the end times is there's going to be a great falling away. I think we're seeing it. And then the third thing is walk the faith. Walk the faith. Colossians 2.6 says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. 
You know, Paul writes to the church doctrinally in chapters 1 and 2, and then he writes to the church practically in chapters 3 and 4. If you don't have right doctrine, then you're going to have wrong living. And we're not called to be good, are we? We're called to be holy. We're called to be holy. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. To be holy is to be separated unto God. And unfortunately... We see very little of that. Biblical Christianity is not out of step with the moral relativism of our culture. It's our culture that has abandoned the true morality, and it is the culture today that is out of step with true biblical Christianity. But they like to turn that around, don't they? And they like to accuse the true biblical church as being out of step with the times. You need to get up, you know, you need to get in with the times. We are in the world, but we're not to live as the world. And unfortunately, so many have become so influenced by the world uh, that their values have become obscured and their behavior as God's people is practically indistinguishable from the lost. Someone is trying to steal away our identity in Christ. And for the most part, they're doing a very good job. They are seeking to replace Christ as the head with someone or something. And they want you to believe that your sufficiency lies within yourself and not in Christ. Colossians 3, 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's our identity. That's our identity. So I close with this. Beware of replacement Christianity. Because that's where we're living right now, in the age of replacement Christianity. And that's all I have. Any questions or comments? Yeah, I think you're right. I'm not sure where it's at. Is this to be turned off?